When, before I went to the NFL, I would look at these speed things. I'm like, oh, man, like you know, so many players at this speed. And then I started looking at NFL game tracking data. So we would take the NGS data and then I would, tra- we would move it into something else and look at it the way we wanted to look at. In NFL games, you don't see a lot of fast, like top huh. speeds. Any, a lot of, not a lot of guys running over 21 miles an hour. Why? Because they anticipate, react, and close space so fast. The game is like a vacuum. So if you ever get to a field level, somebody catches the ball, and then there's like a major train wreck. And so uh, now what you see is these what I call high-intensity acceleration yards are really, really high. Why? Because they're closing space so quickly. Um, You rarely see 21 miles an hour, 22 miles an hour. You'll see more of that in college. We will absolutely ride the wheel, uh, ride it to the wheels fall off in one by twenty. If they don't progress two weeks in a row, we drop it to fifty. Repeat. Don't repeat two weeks in a row. Drop to ten. Then we go one set of twenty, one set of fifteen. So then we go a two set approach. And we ride that to the wheels fall off, and then we go fifteen ten, and then we go twenty fifteen ten, and nobody has got to that so far. And they've been here since July. That was Eric Coram and Kirwan and Flat. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith. Thanks for being here today. We are on episode 179, and I am thrilled to have these two gentlemen on the show today. Eric Korm is the Associate Athletic Director for Student Athlete High Performance at William & Mary University. He was previously the Director of Sports Science for the Houston Texans, and before that, he was the High Performance Coordinator at the University of Kentucky Football Program. That's actually where I first met and, and heard Eric speak was when he was in that position at uh, Jay DeMeo's Central Virginia Sports Performance Seminar. Kieran of Flat is the coordinator of football performance at William & Mary. He was previously on this show on episode 125. He is the founder of RugbyStrengthCoach.com and has spent many years, um, I would say overseas because I'm on American soil right now, but uh, in countries outside the United States working with rugby programs. And recently, he's starting to take on American football and as well as Olympic sports within the States. Eric and Kier are a veritable all-star team of athletic development, not only in the world of speed, strength, and power, but knowledge that goes beyond that to the governing dynamics of sport performance, so emotional, mental, and looking at data, tactics, technical, and integrating it all and understanding what each part presents to the whole and how the role of a strength coach can manifest itself optimally looking at all those roles from a 10,000-foot view. On the show today, we're going to get into some important topics of game speed, change of direction specific to games, uh, looking at GPS and what that means from a speed and strategy standpoint. We're also going to talk about strength training. So what's the most maximally efficient way to get athletes strong while leaving gas in the tank for all their four years across the scholastic experience, as well as not overworking them for the sake of really drawing out one quality over others that might be important in their sport. So... Those two things are pretty commonplace to the conversations we have on the show and within modern sports performance. Uh, getting outside that a little bit more, we're going to get into some more global or governing concepts. So the ideas, so ideas on mental and emotional factors and sports success, especially at higher levels. We're going to talk about the specificity of mental toughness and how do we really train athletes to be successful when it comes to fourth quarter overtime pressure situations and beyond. We're also going to look at how Eric and Kier utilize performance logs. We're going to chat a little bit about um, the governing the governing dynamics of sport and how that's impacting conversations that they're having with sport coaches, as well as just general principles that define successful teams. This was a fantastic show, and I couldn't think of two better people to talk to this early morning that we sat down and recorded this show. With that being said, let's get on to episode 179 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast with Eric Coram and Kier Wenneflat. Uh, so first off, in terms of uh, movement that transfers to the field, I think the the big thing is that is talked about a lot is, and I said movement just because there's change of direction and agility, linear speed, you know, everything and everything in between. And we all, obviously we want, even if our athletes are performing a, a static agility test or it's not showing up uh, uh, and in gameplay, that's always going to be a concern. And then when you guys are going through um, agility, movement, change of direction, how are you guys looking at how that might show up on the field? What are some things that you're doing that uh, you're looking to make an impact there? 
well, I'd say it's kind of like a, a two-prong approach. There's, there's been a couple of things that I've been educated on and changed my mind on in the last 18 months or so. And um, I'd say that a big one was uh, at the Central Virginia seminar last year with Jake Jensen, who is the, the, the English language translator for Bondicic. So a lot of people are familiar with Transfer of Training in Sport, which is his book. And prior to speaking to Jake and kind of getting it, you know, as, as close to a first-hand source of information you can get in English, I kind of had my idea in the head of what constitutes specific agility or specific speed in the context of, of field-based sports. And one thing that he forced me to realize is a specific exercise is specific because it has predictive value in terms of sport results on the field. So a spe specific exercise is you increase performance in this exercise and you can have near certainty or extremely high degree of confidence um, that you're going to see improved sport results in the field. And he said to me, if you increase someone's speed or you make them a little bit quicker off the mark, are you uh, guaranteeing or having a high degree of confidence that you're going to improve their performance in the field? And the answer is obviously no, because you're completely ignoring the psycho-perceptual elements, the decision-making, how players move in relation to one another. So what I thought was specific was general specific at best. All I was doing was laying the foundation or increasing the um, the envelope to tap into with truly sport-specific speed and agility, which is athletes having to perceive their environment, process information, select decisions, and then execute that in the field of play. So one thing that we've really tried to do here in the last year with football is... I believe we talked about it in, in the episode that we did, which is we're trying to remove mechanical inefficiencies, get them to be able to execute movements in a closed environment at full speed. And then we start to introduce those elements where they have to uh, be exposed to relevant game cues, process the information, uh, discover for them what their optimal style is, what their favorite toys are going to be to solve movement-based problems because you can have two athletes in the same position with very, very different physical gifts that will solve the same problem by different means. And what we try and do is provide them with like a, a guided learning environment to discover for them what works and then they get to sharpen those tools. And this is where it kind of bleeds into to sport practice. But then ultimately our job is not done unless they can execute it at full speed in, in a game environment. And then, Another one is uh, there was an excellent book called Speed Strength by some guy whose name I forget. <laughs> was, uh, one of the things that I've learned from you in the last year, you know, via Darren as well, is how many times do you have to see an elite athlete do something that's quote unquote wrong before you realize actually they're doing it for a reason and it's probably the right way. And you, this whole time you've been coaching them not to do it. So lower center of gravity, less knee lift, feet splayed out, all that kind of stuff is not conducive to running 12 meters a second when your job is to run fast and turn left. But when your job is to be able to react as quickly as possible and perhaps move offline and react to stimuli, you don't necessarily want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. So that's that's been um, a major learning point for me this year from you, which is, are you? is it really wrong? Or is it they're doing it for a reason and you need to keep that in and understand the transfer of those idiosyncrasies to on-field movement? It's kind of like the Roy Williams, remember the receiver from Texas? His feet were like this, like a duck. Oh, yeah. I, everybody would marvel at the fact that how good of a route runner he was, how fast he was. And there was always this conversation of this is back in the two th early, mid-2000s. Like, should we change? You know, people are like, should they change his foot position? No. Leave it alone. Yeah. Don't screw them up. Yeah, yeah. That's that's something I'm trying to get uh, Gary Ward, uh, who I had uh, foot expert from the UK back about 60, 70 episodes ago, and trying to get him back to talk about. He was talk about just that, um, not turning, not trying to steer the feet into the middle. And yeah, I've I've certainly learned a lot from a Darian myself that has made me rethink and change my mind about a lot of things that I thought were quote unquote right in coaching before. 
I was I want to dig in a little bit too. Um, Kira, you had mentioned two different players might have different. You might train them differently under a different paradigm, even if they do the same. If they're both receivers or something of the same skill in terms of their movement on the or their movement ability, uh, what could you do, guys? Um, can you guys dig into that a little bit on how you might uh, make those differences? Well, I, I think it's kind of difficult here um, with the numbers. I mean, there's Kier over football. He has a half of an assistant, meaning, well, he's got an assistant, and then I'm in and out all the time. So in an ideal world, yes. You know, at a Power 5 school, you got five strength coaches, you have smaller groups, you can do that. Um, but I think it kind of goes back to, are you giving them the requisite skill set they need to, to solve problems? Are you giving them um, foundational rules that they can apply? But I don't know, I mean, how much individual work you've been able to do one-on-one because the sessions move, you know what I'm saying? It's just not realistic in our environment. I mean, in theory, I'm going to be full intellectual here, the art of war, there's there's three ways to win in warfare. More force, more speed, or misdirection. So – all athletes have those three tools at their disposal to, to solve sporting problems. And for example, when you look like me, it's probably not going to be more force. <laughs> so based on the individual makeup that I have, I have to learn how to try and utilize more speed or more misdirection to achieve the same outcome. So that's, I think that's what it boils down to when, when everybody is different, everybody is going to be more naturally geared towards solving sporting problems via, by different means. And I think it was the Patriots. Oh, no, I, I read it in um, The Process by Fergus Connolly. And it was, it was a quote from uh, Belichick, which is, the, the less you have of one thing, the more you need of the others. So actually, a, a balanced approach and a balanced offense is, is useful because it keeps the opposition guessing. If I only have one tool, you know what I'm going to do. I have to be that much better at doing it. And you see this in, in uh, combat sports the whole time. Everybody knows that Damian Meyer is going to try and take them down and rear naked choke them. So he has to be as good as he is to be able to execute that. Um, but it's very interesting having that balance, but then also understanding that athletes are going to naturally gravitate towards one solution and trying to structure all aspects of the program, physically, tactically, technically, psychologically, to be able to best use those tools. I like that. I like that quote from the, or the, uh, based on the idea of the art of war. I, I think about, um, I'm thinking been lately, or I've been thinking lately a lot about even myself or I, I didn't play football, but in basketball, it was all speed and then occasionally force and never any misdirection because I didn't have that tool. Uh, but if I would have developed it, I, I think I would have been a lot better. And I even think about that now playing pickup and things like that and why I was that type of player. But, um, I, I think that's a really it's really interesting when we we look at our players under those those series and I know in terms of the, the movement on the field uh, one thing I wanted to chat with you guys a little bit about was was speed training and spe- specifically that was something Jake Schuster said and something I saw in one of your your um, social media posts but um, doing um, Jake had said uh, teams with it's for the sake of injury prevention being sure to do maximal speed running regularly and I've seen you guys do I believe fly tens in season things like that. I wanted to chat about how you guys are uh, trading linear speed and then how you're using it. And even throughout the season, like what are you trying from a both performance and then an injury prevention perspective? Yeah. So I think there was an article recently. I can't remember which journal it was in, but it was talking about speed is medicine and um, like being a preventative measure. And the first time I heard about this was Dave Tenney and his uh, performance, uh, is Seattle Sounders clinic back in the day where they found that if guys didn't hit 90% greater max velocity in the week, they're greater risk for hamstring injury. So we do do speed top ups on Tuesday, which is our first hard practice. We've got to get better at doing them. Meaning like getting the guys, you know, it's, you only have so long to warm up, but uh, for the most part, we're getting guys to that 90% threshold or greater uh, our skills and our mid skill positions um, with the linemen, you know, as far as speed and season, they do some acceleration work, but most of the time in games, they're not up and running. 
Now, there are defensive linemen that will play special teams, and so they need that capability. Bill. Bill, we have guys on. This kid's a beast, man. He won the game for us. He, yeah. He blocked another punt, and guys, stud. Uh, he ran 21 and a half miles an hour at almost 300 pounds. Wow. Oh. Um, yeah. The only other player I've ever tracked running that fast, that big, was Jadavian Clowney. And uh, when I told that to our staff, our football staff, they were like, really? And like, yes, really. And there's a video of it online. You can find him chasing a quarterback down. It's le- it's legit. But uh, with the linemen, you know, something I've been talking to Kier a lot about is, is, is actually doing less speed work with them mm-hmm. unless they're going to be required to play special teams and doing more short XLs. Um, and really, we need – our guys need to get stronger this offseason and, and starting strength and uh, explosive strength in a short, short area is really, really going to be important to their success. But all the mid skills and the skill players, yes, we do do quite a bit this past offseason, at least twice a week, they were doing um, maximal velocity training. Well, we had a, yeah, twice a week we'd be hitting that top end. So we'd have one like pure fly day and then we'd have one longer axle day. And, you know, we know for most of our guys, they're going to be above 90% by 30 yards. So we, so we, were, hitting it least, yeah. we were hitting it at least twice a week. And then you've got sport practice. So there's there's a few odd instances throughout the week where they, they may get above 90% in sport practice, but they're mostly special teams and interceptions and stuff like that. And I wouldn't say – I will just say this. When, when we got here, we had one player able to run over 21 miles an hour. Yes. And by the end of the offseason, we had eight, which is remarkable. Um, In games, it's not always great to say, oh, we had so many players run over X amount of speed because it could mean that they're chasing somebody. Um, That was our high speed this year. We we had one guy hit 22.5 in a game in pads, and it was not for the right reasons. (laughs) (laughs) But he had the ability to do it when he needed to tap into it. And um, I think one game we had 14 players over 20 miles an hour, which is pretty, mm-hmm. pretty fast. Um, so we hit it. We just this offseason, we're going to be looking at things a little bit differently from a, from the big guys perspective. It goes into that thing about predict again, predictive value. Yes. Yes, you want athletes to be robust, but you always, you also want to direct your effort towards the stuff that is gonna you can have a high degree of confidence that will transfer to the field of play. And I think I can say it now. Brian Mann released a paper this year from his days at uh, Mizzou, where the KPI for on-field minutes for the bigs was strength, and then for the mids it was the broad, and then for the skillies it was I think it was the fly ten or the forty. So it, hmm. it almost tells you what you already know, which is closer to the snap, more force, further from the snap, more speed. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, a year in now, we've, we've got a year of learning under our belt, especially me, and we, we can afford to tweak a little bit now and say, well, we're confident that we're going to manage the injuries with a little bit less speed with the bigs and free up those resources to, to train the, the force end. And then I'd say, you know, marking myself, I think we did a better job with the skills this year than we did with the base. That, uh, yeah, that kind of brings me, uh, I had that question uh, a little bit down in the lineup, but let's cover it maybe a little bit more depth now, <laughs> now if there's anything for it as the, uh, the, basically the KPIs for different positions. So I, you mentioned it just there, the, the, it was the, uh, receipt or the skilled players. It was speed, the, uh, middle, like, lo- like linebackers, the standing broad jump. And then the bigs was strength. Uh, what was the was there any uh, measures specifically in strength uh, that uh, Doctor Man had for them, or, or is, is there anything else? Yeah, it was how many times I could press two twenty five. Now you know the end was like thirty something people, but um, and this is really interesting though. If you look at two twenty five bench press and success in the NFL, like especially left tackle, the longer the arms the better, you know, you want, I think it's 72 inch. I can't remember the exact length of arms that you want, but if you have longer arms, you're not going to be able to press 225 as many times. However, it is important that you're strong um, and can display that. I would say this though, like here, you know, we, we beat ourselves up like constantly just like, what can we do better? But we did like 
have a fantastic rushing season. We broke the school single game rushing record, 462 yards in one game. Our linemen did do a good job, but we know that, that, that after evaluating all of our positions, that's something that we want to improve with those players. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one thing that you had mentioned recently, like just a few minutes ago, I also thought was interesting was looking at the like the the you said the games were like a lot of players were hitting really high speeds doesn't necessarily mean it was a good game because you're chasing people down the field basically or something like that. Um, that's I mean it, it's it's interesting to think. Uh, do you guys have any uh, like I've seen this before uh, or like like validation like you, you have Tony Heller feed the cats and I've seen. Um, I've seen programs that have like uh you know the player that hit the fastest speed this week or anything that's anything that's like a reward based system for any athletes based off of the technology or data measures you guys are collecting. Not right now. Um, I will tell you something interesting. So when before I went to the NFL, I would look at these speed things. I'm like, oh man, like you know, so many players at this speed. And then I started looking at NFL game tracking data. So we would take the NGS data and then I would tra- we would move it into something else and look at it the way we wanted to look at in NFL games. You don't see a lot of fast, like top hmm. speeds. Any, a lot of, not a lot of guys running over 21 miles an hour. Why? Because they anticipate react and close space. So fast. The game is like a vacuum. So if you ever get to a field level, somebody catches the ball and then there's like a major train wreck. <laughs> and so, uh, now, what you see is these what I call high-intensity acceleration yards are really, really high. Why? Because they're closing space so quickly. Um, you rarely see 21 miles an hour, 22 miles an hour. You'll see more of that in college. So when you see the next-gen stats and they're flipping out about some player running 22 miles an hour, I bet there's 80 Division One programs that had somebody do that during the week. Well, I spoke to someone <clears throat> secondhand. I spoke to a guy – was in a group of five that previously worked in the SEC, and they had eight guys break 23 in a game. Wow. We, we have not had one guy break 23 this year. So it, it tells you, you know, if you are, if you're in a, a conference where you have just unreal recruiting and there's a, a massive mismatch between teams, the field kind of opens up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. You know, looking back for us, the the slowest games were when we played UVA because we had no space to operate. They just shut us down. And it was also games where we were the, the stronger team because we didn't have to put our foot down. So it, it's kind of like in, in the middle, to me, is probably where you're going to see those fastest games. Yeah, with, with all that data, too, that you guys are collecting, and this probably lends into the last question that I had about kind of the governing dynamics, but is, this, is that th- some of this data... Uh, integrating itself into the conversations that are being had with the sport coaches and the skill coaches and 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 all that is that is that something that those type those coaches are interested in or is there a way that that's transferable to anything they're doing or is it right now is it more something on the strength coaches end or the sports performance end? I will say this that in other schools I've been at where it usually takes a couple seasons before the coaches really start to wrap their mind around it. Um, <clears throat> so. These high-intensity acceleration yardages, for instance, I, I worked for one coach. We started looking at a ratio of that versus the total distance covered in practice for receivers, and it was like you could watch the film, and you could tell you would already say like this guy is the most explosive player, and then you would go look at the data, and you're like, check. See what I'm saying? So the coach would go, I bet we're going to see a lot of this today. Um, I had another coach I worked with that he looked at me in practice one day and he said, Eric, I bet you the, the, the average player load today is 400. And it was like 402. Hmm. And he had gotten to the point where he could just watch it and tell what was going to happen. That's good. Um, right now, you know, there are certain metrics, honestly, like just total distance covered for receivers is like an eye opener. Like, Today, so-and-so covered 7,800 yards or 8,000 yards. Like, we need to bring that down tomorrow. Um, until you actually know what the cost of training or practice is, um, you're just – you're working from a one-way – you're, like, on a one-way road. And all you know is I scripted this, and this is what we're going to do. But you don't know what the cost is to your athlete. So I think the connections are starting to get made. 
of when I do this, then there is this result. So um, part of that is the maturation of technology and data being integrated into the coaching environment. The more years the coaches have to look at it, the more that they start just thinking about it that way. I think as well as the, the turnaround of the data, you know, I, I'm, <clears throat> we, we can laugh about it now, but when I was with the, the first year that I was with Argentina, we had GPS data, but because I think it was like somebody didn't know how to work the software, we would do a session and we would get the, the data four days later. And it's like, well, it's like having a fire alarm. There's a fire going on in your house and it rings five days after the house burned down. It's like, well, I mean, you know, it's the, the, the faster you can get in, the faster you can get data, the faster you can derive meaningful information from it, create the right narrative with the coaches and and act upon it, it's, it's a virtuous cycle. Narrative, to, to me, narrative is everything. I literally, I bought a, a, a book this year called Propaganda <laughs> because every, everyone in any business is telling a story and the story that you tell can have profound influence on how people perceive you, what their behavior is in response to the information that you're giving, stuff like that. And not it can be used for bad, but your, your ability to dictate the narrative and to influence behavior is ultimately going to be the limiting factor in most sports teams. Most sports teams do not have uh, a data or information problem. They have uh, an execution, implementation, and behavior problem. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to share with you a little bit about what our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, now has available in their store. You hear me mention in the outro of the show all the time about the free lap timing system in the K-Box, which I have and use regularly. But today I wanted to share a little bit more about the bar speed monitoring units that Simply Faster has, which is the GymAware and the new portable flex unit. So let me start with the GymAware. I mention it regularly on the show. It's been referred to as the Cadillac of bar speed monitors. Carl Valley calls it a lab inside a lunchbox, as the readings you get out of the GymAware go well beyond typical concentric or just up the up phase of the lift velocities. Rather, you can measure the entire shape of the barbell lift in terms of eccentric velocity, range of motion, and total work done. Total work being awesome, by the way, especially like comparing a long-armed bench presser or a 6'10 squatter versus a 5'11 point guard. So you're getting all these extra metrics that you're not getting on other units. It's perfect for teams wanting to manage the weight room, and the data synchronizes to software platforms such as CoachMe Plus, Team Builder, and Athlete Monitoring. So new to the store is the Flex, which is the ultra-portable and lower-priced travel version of the coach's favorite gym wear. So just like the gym wear, the Flex measures the shape of each rep, range of motion, total work done, eccentric dynamics. So for this and the gym wear, this is the advantage that a force plate would have over just knowing how high you jumped. You're getting many other metrics and information that go into this unit of work. Compared to similar portable bar speed monitors, this unit gets the entire rep rather than a fraction. So you have here two awesome tools. And if you're interested in upping your game in the velocity-based training and bar speed world, I would definitely recommend heading to the store at simplyfaster.com and checking into these two units. All right, let's get back to the show. In terms of the, the feedback that you guys are getting now, are you, I mean, are you making, um, is it impacting decisions in the gym or, or in uh, any sort of speed work or conditioning based off of, uh, like if someone's player load or, or the amount of speed that they've been doing is very high, does that impact um, like the, the, the amount of uh, like 10 meter flies or, or accelerations they're doing? Are you, is that working its way into you guys' process? No, I will say this, yeah, resources, but also like, <clears throat> you bring somebody a, a GPS report and they're like, well, is this a lie? Well, I don't know. I mean, I can tell you based off of experience that, yeah, a receiver running 9,000 yards is a crap load of work. The question is, is how did the athlete respond to it? I, well, we're getting more, um, what's driving more change is things like the wellness questionnaires and the, uh, and the acute chronic stuff. So when you look at the wellness questions, we have this dashboard that our assistant Scott Kewen made 
and it's just a traffic light system for the coaches. And you pull that up and you start seeing, oh, this guy's red, this guy's green. And our head coach, to his credit, is very concerned about that stuff. And he'll ask questions like, why is this this way? I want to understand this because a freshman that goes out and performs a training session, they're not as adaptable, hopefully, as a junior or senior. So there's more cost to the freshman than there is a senior. So just looking at, I did three fly tens and just making a guess off of what the impact's going to be is probably not a great idea. If you have something on the back end that then points to, man, they're feeling more sore today. They're feeling more fatigued versus the other guy who feels great. That's where the, the behavior change comes. And as well, it's, <clears throat> it's a, stress is a subjective experience. So I'll give you a real example from this year. The first overtime game that we had this year went into five overtimes. So the game, you know, we, we, we yeah, switch on. <clears throat> By the time the game's done, a couple of the units have died from the lack of battery. So it was that long. Oh. Uh, but we won. And if we look at the wellness questionnaire from the week before where we lost, and it was an eminently winnable game, the wellness response was actually a little bit lower after a five overtime win than a regulation time loss because of the mood, I'm guessing some of the nocturnal activities post-game, all that kind of stuff. It, it reinforces how subjective uh, the experience of stress can be and the knock-on impact um, on the body. And that, to me... Being uh, quite logical and cold sometimes, you want to ignore the social and psychological aspects, but you can see how profound the effects can be. So as I try to mature as a coach, I'm more willing and understanding the value of watering down physiology and um how precise i am in the programming to make sure that the boys love what they do and that the psychological aspect is taken care of because of the underlying value so we also got the best feedback of the year following that game on the wellness questionnaire one of the players wrote death to 300s oh. <laughs> he said it felt like a practice Oh, oh, like because you guys hadn't been doing the three hundred yard shuttles, and then you, they won in five overtimes, or that was something like that. Or yeah, we don't do that stuff. Yeah. So, like, you know, we don't do one ten, like sixteen one tens, or three hundred yard shuttles. And so the running back put on the wellness questionnaire death to three hundreds. Like, he, like he got it. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. All that stuff doesn't work. Like, it doesn't matter. And so, anyways, I thought that was that was probably the best feedback we got all year. We're winning the propaganda war. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Nothing. There's nothing. Uh, there's no better case study than, I mean, you, you hear like people say, fourth quarter, you got to have that, get ready for the, well, how about five overtimes? <laughs> okay. I guess got to get on a soapbox for a second. In what planet, like you get to the fourth quarter and all of a sudden, like, it's so stupid. Everybody go, you know, like you got the fourth quarter drills in the summer and the winter offs. Like nobody's going it's the fourth quarter now. I'm I'm remembering those hard training sessions, and that now is transferring to my performance. It was interesting, and this is the, this is classic. We go into the last overtime game last week against our arch rival. Games been played for 130 years, hadn't won in five years. We get to overtime, and the guys are like, guys, we've been here before. We've won in overtime. That is where, you know, we talked to our coaches about toughness. Toughness is task-specific. There's a global optimism that you need to be tough. Like, you want to recruit somebody that's globally optimistic and not a Debbie Downer. But you develop toughness in the specific task you were asking them to perform. So, they've been in overtime. They've been successful. That's what they're drawing upon. Not mattress. You guys remember July? That doesn't happen. It's not even real. It's a bunch of bullcrap. I'll say this as well. And nobody on our sidelines doing this either. That, the, that, the, raising know, your hands with the, the four fingers because we have audio. Yeah. So you, yeah no, our coach even said, What happened? You know, he said, Guys, I don't ever want to see 
four fingers in the air. Why? What happened to the first, second, and the third quarter? Yeah. Anyway, continue. <laughs> it it definitely. I mean, I. I don't work with, um, you know, I, most of my teams are actually individual, but even in just in observing teams over time, this is just my observation. I was thinking about the uh, Cam Joss and the Fergus Connolly and the four coactive, and I've always kind of felt like the teams of all those factors, the biggest factor of all those in the, the fourth quarter overtime is actually more the psychological and the tactical than it is the other two even. I mean, technical, yes, the physical, but it always seems like the teams that are um, more well disciplined and have better leadership and can can um, funnel the emotion of it you know whatever's happening better it that supersedes the you know i guess quote unquote physical or the the conditioning in, in those situations because i feel like we the adaptive reserves of the body are are fairly profound given the task i i you know so just my two cents from someone who's a little bit more of an observer than in the trenches but did in july yes there's some carryover if you did aerobic work, mitochondrial stuff, but like you've been conditioning through practice to the practice itself in the game that you're exactly right. When you get to that situation, it's, have I been here before? You know, have you read performing under pressure? I have not. Great book, but it talks about like, what is a pressure situation? It's like a, it's a, there's an out that the outcome is important. It's uncertain. Uh, and there's one other component I can't remember right now, but like when you get into these scenarios, you don't want somebody going into a situation where they don't, they can't draw upon a specific situation. They've already been there before. Like you don't throw a, a seal, a Navy seal into the fight without ever having simulated that fight many, many times. They're going to freeze. Well, last year between uh, Kansas city and uh, the Patriots in the championship game, they, they've, I think the, the Patriots have underperformed a little bit in the game. <clears throat> it was tied at the end of uh, regulation time. And then they flashed up a stat on the screen, which was number of Kansas City players that had played overtime in the championship game. And it was zero. Hmm. Number, wow. num- sorry, number of people on that team. And then for the Patriots, something like 20 on both sides of the ball that, that had played overtime in the championship game. The rest is history. So I think it's, it's very uh, situation specific and, you know, we've, we've been here before. And speaking from personal experience of being in a staff that got their pants pulled down by the All Blacks twice a year, every year, the, the reason the All Blacks are so good is because, like you said, the tactical piece, some, someone once said to me, when you play the All Blacks, you think you're doing well for the first 20 to 40 minutes, but in reality, they're just figuring you out. Hmm, yeah. And your weakness in the last 20 to 40 minutes, and they've emptied the tank the least in the first three quarters of the game or so. And that last 20 is where they're just putting it to. So it's like, how well are you processing and using the information that they're giving you in the first portions of the game? And how well are you going to adapt to your game plan and, and put it to them in the last quarter? Yeah. I love that stuff. I, I, um, I mean, even though it's <laughs> right, this is a, 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 I guess you call it a, a sports performance uh, podcast. I mean, to me, this is, this is the stuff that, I, I, lo- I love talking about it all, but I, I always love talking about it's like you have to open yourself to those layers because if you if everything is just physical conditioning driven, you know, then you you live in a box, you know, you it, and to understand that I think is really critical and important if you are doing the have the hat of the physical preparation coach and and on that end of things. Uh um, so one thing I, I did before we moved on, I, is there anything else in terms of the, the technology and data side that you guys are stat lines, anything you talked to wellness, wellness reports, um, and then a little bit in terms of the speed and uh, team speed, speed and things like that. Is there any other sort of tech or data points that you guys have or wanted to mention or clarify anything? I mean, we use RPE, we use wellness questionnaire and, uh, we use, uh, a GPS monitoring system. Yeah. And then for a few players, we have uh, Omega Wave. And um, really we're using that, I'm using that more with basketball because we're doing a research project with computer science on like a forecasting model. And uh, it's just hard to utilize that technology. You know, the, you need a decent sample size of the team and so we've just used it with a couple really, really key players. But really, we don't have the money for it. And so we just try to do the simple things better. And we're still trying to get 
really good at that. Like I just had a lunch and learn with our all of our coaches yesterday on how to use the dashboard that we created through Google Docs better. How does how to get everybody on the same page? Uh, we have what's called pod meetings, and it's like the, the, the sport coaches, athletics performance, sports medicine, and uh, you know I went into the women's basketball one, and the trainer, athletic trainer, was sitting there. The, the dashboard was pulled up on the screen and we looked at loads, we looked at wellness, and then we formulated a plan. So that framework is like having a, uh, a recommendation. I, I came up with it, but it's, yeah. it's basically, it's, it's one that what we learned moving forward is it's one thing to have the meeting, which is a tremendous opportunity to share information because one thing I wrote down this year, whoever has the most complete model of reality wants so in order for me to have the most complete model of reality, I need to understand and know what's in your head and vice versa, because all of us have different strengths and weaknesses and we, have, we approach the problem from different angles. So the more completely we can share information, that's one thing. The more um, free the exchange of information can be, the better. So you can talk about, if you're the physical guy, you can talk about tactical, technical, ask questions about this. If you're the head coach, you can ask about rehab, player availability, logistics, all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of like a free speech uh, meeting. But what we needed to do was have the framework in place, I realized, because not all meetings were created equally. So if we can guide the process. So now we have a structure to those meetings of um, who's available, who's not available, when will they be available, how are we going to modify the program for them this week moving forward, what are the KPIs? What's the practice schedule look like? What's the intensity? What's the duration? All that kind of stuff. Any other information? Uh, having that human piece to it. Who's doing well out, outside of sport? Who's not doing well? What can we do to pick them back up? All that kind of stuff. And I think it, it's nothing to do with physiology, nothing to do with sets and reps, but that's one thing that I'm, I'm interested in continuing to develop this year. Along those lines, I think you guys are doing um, education pieces. Uh, Kira, I think you had mentioned something like this to me a while ago, doing education pieces for some of the different coaches on at on staff in the athletic department on what um, just different good practices. And I, I, Can you tell me a little bit more about that, what you guys are doing there? Yeah, I think we started – Eric's baby, so – Well, I mean, we started with um, – I mean, Kira and I put a lot of this together. We started with, um, you know, what is high-performance – and then we started and then we went to reverse engineering performance. Like what, how do you do that for, we use five physical, psychological, technical, tactical, and then intellectual. Um, what does that mean? Breaking your, looking at elite performance and going all the way back. Like what are the constituent parts? We actually use basketball in this example. Um, Cause he's just a rugby guy and I'm just a football guy. And there's no way that you can look at another sport and understand it. Cause they're all so special. Right. If I hear that one more time, I think I will throw up. Oscar awesome, unique. <laughs> Our sport is so special, nothing like it on the planet. So it's an engineering process. So um, helping our coaches like break down those constituent parts. We've actually had one coach that read James's Governing Dynamics book, um, and really is kind of as I mean, it was so crazy. We had a meeting with him, and he's like. Um, it was a year, year plus ago, and he's talking about the conditioning test he wants to do. And I'm like, well, he's a volleyball coach. I'm like, why are you going to do this test? He goes, well, that's what we did so-and-so place I was at. Well, why did you do that? Well, I don't know. Okay, what are the game demands for volleyball? I don't know. Okay, how many times did they hit the ball during the game? I don't know. And he started getting angry. And I was like, man, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to piss you off. And he's like, well, I'm more angry at myself that I don't know these things. So he, I said, well, look what kind of literature is out there? Not a whole lot. So he took a stopwatch and just watched film and just started, you know, measuring work to rest ratios, how many times they moved, how many times they hit the ball. And then within one year, he was able to break out practice sessions based off of central nervous system demand, energy system, the technical, tactical stuff. Um, and so that's what we're trying to do is teach our coaches to actually like in the ideal world, they can eliminate our jobs. It won't happen, uh, but we don't want them to rely on specialists so much. Rather, they understand the global construct to put the pieces together themselves because there's going to be situations where they don't have somebody with them. And, uh, you know, there's only one coach that I know of that's probably operating on that level in the NFL. It's probably Belichick. He's probably the closest there probably is. 
of just seeing the whole entire picture. And um, I don't know him. I've never talked to him. But you can just kind of gather from the way things are put together. Um, and that you're not overemphasizing one component. If you put all your eggs in the technical basket, but you don't work on the physical development to express those qualities, then the expression of your skills can be very low. If you put all your eggs in the psychological basket, but you don't prepare uh, from a tactical standpoint, yeah, you may be resilient, but you're resilient to do what? Sit on your butt? You know what I'm saying? So it's like having this very balanced approach. And so we have these conversations. Um, the last one we did was with our sports psychologist. Uh, I asked her to begin identifying what we call hallmarks of elite performers. So we had a meeting with the coaches and started explaining like what psychological uh, characteristics do all elite performers share. And then the idea is then to go from there to how do you then, what are the, what do those traits look like? How do you develop them? And then more importantly, how do you recruit them? Because what you don't want to do is like, if you're training for somebody for the hundred meters, you're not looking for a 12 second hundred meter men, right? That's like a bad decision. There's a ceiling, there's a floor and a ceiling, right? For development. Well, for all these psychological qualities, there's also a floor and there's also a ceiling. So whenever you look at somebody from where they are right now, and then you project where they'll be in the future, if you draw a straight line between those two points, that's talent. And the expression on that talent is their developmental profile or their character, character in a broader sense. And so what we want to do is if, if you, if you, value somebody that is tough minded how are you recruiting that quality instead of just bringing them in and then going oh wait a second they're soft as charmin <laughs> you know there's not a whole lot you can do with that and then you're like well we need to bring them in the weight room and we need to do 10 by 10 and squat them until they puke and you know what i'm saying and then that's that's how we're going to fix this that is not how you fix that problem you recruit somebody that's tough minded you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I, I like going back just a little bit. I had this um, thought almost as if if you said that you had one coach who had read the governing dynamics. And to me, I'm almost thinking uh, if there was a certain percentage of the department that uh, ended up reading that book and was able to communicate with the all aspects of the high performance staff on that level. It's it'd be cool to see some stats on like you know win loss trends or something like that over time. Just uh, the communication would be so easier too, uh, or so there would be less because um, I just have a single model of clarity. Uh, I mean, I guess that would be the goal in a department, right? <laughs> it's it's definitely I think it's it's often not quite there. So I had this uh, thought or idea of just, I, I love what you guys are doing. I feel like the more, the more coaches who are on the same page, the better. And just even, I mean, a lot of times I think it's just can be a, just a clash of ideas and backgrounds, but having some sort of, at least some sort of mutual text to say, Hey, like, but here is a model. Here's a proposed model of how, what, what we all should know and, and what uh, leads to success. I, I, I definitely agree. I think I was just thinking it'd be interesting if the psychologist was involved in the recruiting process to see like like the mental floor, right? The athlete, because well, you, you don't find it out. We're <clears throat> we're trying to help our coaches with this because the number one complaint is not about their physical abilities. Typically, it's about if you you know things related to core values, like accountability, discipline, those type of things that a coach may value. And then their mental resiliency. I mean, that is where people are most getting most frustrated. Why? Because people don't have a system to do that. And um, that's like busts in the draft. So people are rarely drafting athletes and saying, oh, he's a bust because it turns out that physically he's, not what we thought he was. It's typically going to be in the personality aspect or maybe the ability to execute tactically under pressure. So psychomotor. Yeah. Why, mm -hmm. why is it that we're so accurate in our ability to evaluate physical preparation in terms of the draft, 
it's because we do a really good job of precisely defining what the quality is that we'd like to recruit. And then, for example, in the combine, maybe not with the bench press, but like speed, we put them into a situation which demands that quality and we evaluate it precisely. <laughs> so if and when we're able to do that with personality traits or the ability to execute tactics under pressure, we will be able to more uh, precisely rank players and recruit the kind of behavior that you want to see. So and I'm just going to give you a, it's easy. It's, it's, it, you can do it. You can do it. Yeah. It's just, there's only one NFL team that I know of right now that does it in a, well, there's a couple, but one guy in particular that's crushing it. Um, I want to give you a quick story about this. So I had a player who ended up being a first round draft pick when I was at Kentucky linebacker, outside linebacker. And when he went to the combine, we trained him for the combine. He had one of the best combine performances in the history of the NFL combine. 260 something, 265, 269 pounds, around a four five vertical or broad at 11 and a half vertical 42 is crazy. Guy was a not bad, not bad. freak. That's okay. That's okay. Yeah, that's okay. This GM comes in from another team and works him out. And I overhear the GM say to this guy, kind of gets close to him. He's like, man, are you a dog? And I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. And guess what? He chose somebody else, and that guy was a total bust. This guy has been awesome in the NFL. And I'm like, you you got to this level. And your question, you're going to ask somebody straight up, are you a dog? Like, of course he's going to say he's a dog. What does a dog mean? Like, I mean, it's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. You don't ask, like, you, it's called behavioral interviewing. You don't ask for what you want to know. You dance around the subject and pull the information out. It's like psychological operations. They don't, nobody is just. Unless you're incredibly good at nonverbal. That, that, you know, that if you've asked it a thousand times and you know a little nonverbal. <laughs> yeah. um, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that, I mean, I think if you asked, yeah, just about any coach uh, with, with team sport athletes and, and that being such a huge, huge factor, I, I definitely agree with the trend of coaches when they, do get those athletes to think that physical conditioning is the answer to get that, get that level, uh, get those, uh, fix those things. I, I won't say that. I mean, I do think that there's occasional times in a physical training session when you occasionally can open up a new channel, but I think it has to be, there has to be a lot of context. I don't think you can't just beat on, you can't just beat on somebody and just expect, um, magic to happen psycho psychologically. Maybe make it like fatigue them. And then it's called training you on the edge of your ability. So put them in a scenario where you know that this is the very edge of where they can operate, push them to that point, and then have them solve a technical or tactical mm -hmm. problem, or use it as a proving ground that you can do more than you think you can do, but it's got to be very specific. But when every day becomes a kick of the nuts, <laughs> you essentially have like lost all meaning. <laughs> yeah yeah no i agree there has to be context i think things definitely can be done in that medium you just have to be smart and purposeful as to exactly yeah. why and what you're doing i don't think it's you know i don't That's think just getting away from this battle yeah you can draw and you know i've done hard things but you can also get that from overcoming difficult circumstances in your life yeah agreed i totally agree um just a couple of minutes we have left. Uh, the last question I wanted to ask you guys was uh, progression year to year. Uh, and Kira, I know you had posted something about this that I, I really liked. It was uh, like the, at least phys from the physical prep perspective, like start with one by 20 and then you're only, you're only moving forward a little bit at a time. Um, so if you guys could briefly get into that and then year to year, like what is the sophomore, junior and uh, senior years potentially look like from a progression and how much are they, how much are they doing or what, um, you know, maybe even what treatments or what uh, technologies are they having access to and um, how do you progress your athletes throughout their time? Well, a, a quote that I stole, I forget, maybe Jake again, but it's like a, a bondage thing is when you expose an athlete to uh, a training means that they're not yet qualified to use, you rob them of the adaptation twice. Once you rob them on the front end because they're not, they don't have the basis of development to get the benefit. And a second time later in their career, when you need that ace up your sleeve and they're already desensitized to it. So 
it, it kind of ties into that idea of the the uh, the toothpaste analogy. Training is like a tube of toothpaste. When the when the tube is new, push anywhere, push you know the, the slightest push, toothpaste is going to come out the end. As the toothpaste tube gets older and older, you have to push harder. You have to push in a more specific direction to see uh, the same result. Same thing in training. When athletes are uh, new to training, very general, low volume, low intensity, because the threshold for adaptation is low. And it's actually in your interest to push into the future as long as possible, having to use a more intense or a more specific stimulus to see transfer to a specific outcome of the food. So what we generally see is low volume, uh, high, high general means early in the career. And then as those KPIs start to progress more slowly, we, we kind of go into the, tool, the, the arsenal and use more specific training means, more intense training means to uh, hopefully see increased transfer for the play. And unfortunately for the physical preparation coaches, there are athletes out there where the degree of stress required to see a further increase in movement speed is so great that it starts to tap into the other training, hmm. tactical training, technical training, psychological training, that you actually, you just have to take it on the chin that physically they're not going to increase anymore. And where you're going to see the transfer is in those other three areas. So I think you see a transition in the athlete's career about how you train them physically, but then also how you train them globally. So to use a concrete example that we have here, we, we use a one by 20 approach with freshmen and we will do one by 20 with all the major movement patterns. So we do um, horizontal push, vertical push, horizontal pull, vertical pull, uh, a compound lower body and maybe a torso or upper back exercise three times a week. Uh, we'll rotate the exercises to, to delay because the more rotation you see in that bondage system, the, the longer it takes to achieve sports mastery, which is in our interest. We will absolutely ride the wheel, uh, ride it to the wheels for a while from one by twenty. If they don't progress two weeks in a row, we drop it to fifty. Repeat. Don't repeat two weeks in a row. Drop to ten. Then we go one set of twenty, one set of fifteen. So then we go a two set approach, and we ride that to the wheels for a while. And then we go fifteen ten, and then we go twenty fifteen ten, and nobody has got to that so far. And they've been here since July. And then we start to go into. That, that would be kind of like a linear approach, adding stress every single day, all that kind of stuff. And then we'd go to more of a, uh, a daily undulating approach. So we're starting to alternate either upper body, lower body, or in season, we, we do a whole body approach, but the qualities change. So rather than asking them to progress uh, two to three times a week, we're asking them to progress once a week, maybe with a periodic deload. Um, and then once we get to the very extreme end of the spectrum, the, the fourth and fifth years where they, they've developed very, very high outputs, it may be that we say, actually, we're content that you've achieved a, a level of output in a certain quality. We're just going to maintain that for the rest of your career. And then we start to go to optimized loading. So we'll use the, the AREG concept from um, stuff like the InnoSport manual, um, so, for example, in the summer we had guys, if you could achieve a double body weight squat, we don't train strength anymore. We just maintain it. But when we go to the, the barbell jump squats, you're going to do as many sets as it takes for you to drop off 5% so that we're trying to hit that optimal dosage and we're going to try and put more, more of our chips towards developing that quality. And what happens after that, I couldn't tell you because <laughs> we haven't got that far. I love it. I feel like I, I wish our time wasn't up. I feel like I could talk about that for ages, but I think so many coaches have seen it. The athletes who, who use, they, especially even high school where all that toothpaste gets rolled out, like, or cross country runners running hundred mile weeks who have nothing left in college, you know, like we've all seen it. And so it's, or, or athletes who, who have just done all the heavy weightlifting and that tube is almost in high school and, and the tube is more rolled out, you know? And so I'm sure you guys get some of that as well from different athletes of different approaches in high school and things like that and what you guys have. But it, I, I, that resonated with me. That post really resonated. I think it's really good stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I sadly, our time's up today. I would love to talk to you guys longer, but I thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Awesome talking to you two guys today. Awesome information. Lots of things to think about and process. So, uh, thank you guys again. Have a great one.
Tati. Thanks for tuning in today. Appreciate you guys being here with us. Always enjoy sitting down and talking shop with people who are so knowledgeable in so many areas of the field and how to look at things from and how to continually apply uh, wider lenses and greater vantage points to this whole thing we call athletic performance. Also, I wanted to let you know quickly about Eric Coram's upcoming website for Brazilian jiu-jitsu training called bjjprep.com. The site is for performance training and injury prevention for Brazilian jiu-jitsu athletes. If you enjoy this show and what we're doing, definitely can help us out by leaving us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. Also, definitely visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, supplies of high-end training technology, gym wear and the new flex unit k-box contact grids force plates and a whole lot more they really bring the best of in each sport tech category as well as having a great blog all right that does it for this week i'm signing out we'll see you guys next week with another episode and another great guest have a good one